0: You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. All right. Hey, guys, thanks for letting me come. Appreciate it. Awesome. And uh, the Maoris are in the house uh, for this service, which is really cool. Brian and I were both up at uh, man camp. And uh, I I will say this. It's one of the things that I loved. is Man Camp had multiple insults for Brian, as they always are insulting me, and then we got insulted together. So it's welcome to leadership, man. You're, you're there. Uh, the, the Man Camp was really special, and I want to, for those of you been around a long time and remember Clint Dupin, how many of you remember Clint? Okay, a lot of you. Clint just left a great impression on us, but the thing that was so moving about this weekend and last night was very special... A lot of guys gave their lives to... Uh, John Cummings was here. He came back down because he had an event around the Lions game. But he said in his cabin alone last night, two guys gave their lives to, to Jesus Christ. He so said there were four guys weeping in his room about stuff that they had kept hidden. for Like one guy had been, had been keeping this stuff hidden from everyone for 30 years. And he, sh- he shares it in the room. It's just... It, it's an amazing experience. But the thing about Clint... Well, a lot of you remember Clint as a jokester, and he sometimes he, he, you'd start to get serious, and he'd make a joke to kind of lighten up the room. Well, there is a weight about him now as a as a man of God, as a communicator. It was special to see, and so uh, very excited for him. His son Henry was able to come with him from California, so that that was just that was awesome. Anyway, um, we had a, we've had a good morning here and around the campuses, and I want to say. That I love this series that we've been in that Brian kicked kicked off about a month ago, with this explanation above all and where we're going as a church. To me, it's been very very exciting, and I've loved this series where we've talked about Jesus being uh, fully human, entirely divine, a sacrificial Savior. It's just been it's been so well done. But what's cool is that today I get to talk about Him as loving Lord. And the passage of scripture that we're teaching from today is the story of the prodigal son, which is the passage of scripture that I spoke on the first Sunday that Kensington began, September 29th, 1990. It's the same scripture, and I've taught it through the years. And the only thing that's changed is it's more emotional. Because I have a lot of years. I have a lot of prodigals. And I want you to know something. I I am a father of prodigals, people that have wandered away. I am a friend of prodigals. I am a prodigal. And Kensington Church, if it's anything, is a church made up of prodigals. It's a people that have gone to far countries and wandered away. And so this passage of Scripture is so exciting for me to share. And it answers a question that I've been pursuing all my life. When I was a young boy, I remember thinking, if God really does exist... And if he does, what is he like? You've thought about that. When you've messed up and you're kept stuff from your parents, you're telling, you're lying to your parents, or you're cheating on friends, you're thinking, man, I wonder what God is thinking about me right now. And we think about what kind of a leader you would be if you had the power, if you had the power of the universe. We know what other world leaders are like. We know what it's like when we get power of our own, that it's easy to let greed and control and dominance over other people take place. So Jesus, when he came, wanted us to know one thing. He wanted us to know what the Father was like. And so he said in John to his disciples, after they had been with him for three years, they said, they said Lord, we still want to know what God is like. And, he, and do you remember what he said? He goes, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Well, if I were going to pick a story out of the Bible to one story, if I was going to lose every other Bible story other than the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, it would certainly be the story that I'm going to share with you today, the story that reveals what kind of Lord Jesus is, what kind of God the Father who sent his son Jesus in the world is like. This is a story that certainly I have shared and will share today. With you. Before we do that, uh, I'd love to pray. I'd love to receive our offering as well. Uh, I, I, wanna, I just got a text uh, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, you guys know that we work with the Palestinian Church in the West Bank. Uh, we have hundreds of friends there. And um, we just heard from um, Nihad and Salwa, Salman of Emmanuel Baptist Church in downtown Bethlehem. And um, Michael just, hang on, let me find it. Um, so, uh, Nihat and Selwa are okay. Um, but they just talked about how never once in their lifetime have they ever gotten to experience peace. Never once in their whole lives. Like every day of their life, knowing that there is domination and peace and loss of freedom and conflict between peoples. That's all they've ever known. And they said they've never known peace except through the, print, the Prince of Peace. That's what they wrote. And I thought, let's pray to the Prince of Peace today, the loving Lord that we want to talk about today. Let's pray for Israel, all the sadness among the Israelis, the Jews, the Palestinians, um, Let's just take it to the Lord. Father, I, I don't know how to pray other than that you would protect lives, that you would save people, that people that are in harm's way would find their way to safety. Lord, this world is broken, and we know that once again, we see that only through your salvation and your intervention can we be whole. And so I would pray that your peace would begin... To take over parts of Israel today, and in the conflict that you would uh, guard over, particularly the innocent, those that are that are just trying to stay out of harm's way. And Lord, for us, that we would not live as if the world was just about us, but that as your followers, as your children, as your sons, as your daughters, that we'd live in such a way to have an impact of blessing and of peace and of hope and encouragement here and around the world wherever we have the opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, are you ready for, ready for Luke 15? I got corrected in the first service. There are three stories in Luke 15. What's the first one? It's the story of the lost sheep. Second is the story of the lost sheep. Lost coin. Man had 10 coins. He lost one. He searched. When he found it, he celebrated. The lost sheep is lost. And it's interesting the lost sheep is so damaged it can't find its way home. So the shepherd goes out and finds it along the way. Yes, by the way, the offering pouch is coming by. Um, Whoops. Another really smooth moment in my credible strategic work. Uh, but thank you guys for, for giving. And I was thinking, we've been able to give um, hundreds of thousands of dollars through your faithfulness and through the faithfulness of people in this church to the church, uh, especially the Palestinian Evangelical Church in the West Bank, and to keep a remnant of followers of Christ, the people that are winning people to Christ, realizing, by the way. I'm going to jump off the sermon just one more second. So many of the people that are coming to Christ in the West Bank can't, can't come to Christ publicly. They're Muslim background, and if they were to, to be known publicly, their lives would be in danger, they'd be kicked out of their families. And so more and more in the West Bank, which is the, uh, the just west of the Jordan River, it's the east side of kind of the country of Israel, is people are coming to Christ, but they're doing it in kind of an underground in an underground movement way. And there's thousands of believers that are living that way. So to to remember to pray for them as well. And thank you that your giving has been a part of that. Okay. So here's my story. This is a story that I love when I was in eighth grade. This was a story that moved me to give my life to Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the story. So Jesus continues in telling the third part, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the story of the lost son or the story of the two sons. It says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I want to put that in 2023 context. Uh, how many of you have some estate that you're going to leave to your children? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. Look, I, I, have, a, I have a vast estate I'm planning to leave to my children, including my 2007 Honda Odyssey. I'm going to let, let the kids fight over that. And, uh, but it's gold. It's, a gold. it's a gold van, you guys. So in this moment, not, not talking about 2,000 years ago, I'm talking about it right now in this moment, if you went to your parents and said, I want my share of, of the inheritance right now, how would that go over in your house? You can't, in fact, it's so bizarre, you can't even imagine asking Can you? Of how offensive that would be. Because sometimes you'll leave a portion of your, some some of you may have a lot of resources and it would make sense tax-wise and to give a portion of your estate before you die. It's not happening for me, I'll tell you that. But this idea, which is outrageous now, would have been so horribly offensive to people of Jesus' day because the actual meaning because the son knew that he should never have his his portion of the inheritance of his father's estate would be when his father died. That's the only time you ever distributed the estate, was on the death of the father. The, the very patriarchal world at that time now would be the death of the father and the mother. And now we don't give it to just sons, we give it to, usually you, you share it evenly, the part that you're going to share. and um, But in that time, a man that had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger son would get one-third, but he's actually saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead, and I want a relationship with you that exists as if you were dead, so I'm going to take my money, and I don't want to even acknowledge your existence. That's how cruel and how heartless this story would be. And what's more shocking in the story is what? What does the father do? He gives it. He complies with it. That's why this story shouldn't be about the prodigal son. It should be really about the the crazy father. So the father does it. Not long after that, verse 13, says the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. But by the way, speaking of, of, of wealth, my, my son-in-law was here in the first service, came under down, some of you know him, and he was uh, he married Lindy, my oldest daughter. She was the first to be married in our family. And on, on, on their wedding day, when the wedding was over, there was a moment where I had him off to the side, and I said, hey, I want you to know something. With your saying the vows today, I want you to know that uh, as of the moment of your vows, that with me, you have full sonship. Like every everything I have, is yours just as much as it's Lindy's or any of my other children, anything that I would do for them, nothing, nothing will break that vow, that covenant that I'm making with you today as my son. And then I said that to my other son-in-law when he married our, our second daughter, Nancy. I only have two, two, in, you know, two sons-in-law at this moment. And they've taken it so seriously that they call it, between themselves, they call it full sonships, full sonships which I consider extremely disrespectful. <laughs> so I've now disinherited them. Uh, but what I wanted them to know is that everything I have is yours along the way. And this is what the father obviously lives this out with his son. So the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. I was looking up at this Greek word. It's, I always love these cool words. This is diaskorpizo, and this is the word in Greek where, you, where you're, you're separating the grain from the chaff after you've harvested the, and you take, you take the stalks and you give a pitchfork and you throw them high up in the air and the wind blows the chaff and the grain falls to the ground. This, is, this guy gets all his money and he literally takes it and throws it. He just basically throws it everywhere as far as he can spend it. And so very shortly, he spends everything. Verse 14 And as he has spent everything, there's a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is, again, remember, this is the Jewish people where, where all pork is unclean, right? We don't live that way, thankfully. Because bacon is is truly a gift from God. And I was thinking about that, especially for the Orange campus. Do you realize that we probably have the greatest pig farming worship arts director in the world? He might be the best pig farming worship leader that, that is known to mankind. And I thought that was a lot funnier than, obviously, you did. So, and I still, I'm still planning out there to, to be a part of a butchering day, so... One of my, it's on my bucket list, believe it or not. And so this young man leaves his heritage and he's living in such a gross and offensive way. And, and I, I tell you, I do have friends that are pig farmers in Iowa and there are a few things, there actually is nothing that I can think of that's nastier. Their pig farm and those pigs and you know the smell and it's awful. Why do we eat that stuff? And he's ready to eat the pods that are sitting in the the trays that the pigs are eating from or eating them off the ground. That's how desperate he is. And here comes this moment that I've thought about that happens to every person. Sometimes you reach a point in your life of desperation. And it says in verse 16 at the end, it says, no one gave him anything. You ever been there? I thought some of you are there today, like you, you've kind of hit rock bottom with the journey of your life, you've kind of searched to fill, to fill the whole, the you know, to fill your life. There was a young man, a young man, probably 40 years old, he came down weeping after the service and the prayer team was praying with him. If you want to do that after the service, it was, it was beautiful, but he just said, nothing has filled that empty space in my heart. I think everybody eventually gets to that place. Because it's a place only the the nourishment of Jesus Christ can fill this empty place in your heart, and he fill it. He's trying to fill it even with the pig food, and, and then it says something amazing. In verse seventeen it says, "When he came to his senses, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death." This verse, won't you leave it up there for a minute? Because I, this this uh, struck me as I was reading through again. It's such, it's such a privilege to, to be able to sometimes see the original language, but the, the literal meaning of this verse, is says, when he came to himself. And I thought about this because I, I'm a father of prodigals. I've been a prodigal myself. I'm a friend of prodigals. I've led a, had a chance to be a part of this church. Brian Mowry now is leading a church of prodigals. A lot of, a lot of wasted a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted years at Kensington. That's why I used to tell people, people say, "Man, eh, I don't know about Kensington. I said, well, we're pretty imperfect. You might need to look for a more perfect church than we are because there's a lot of screwed up people. That was because that was just the truth. But to me, it's, it's the messed upness of our lives that creates a hunger in us for what is truly loving and good and beautiful. And so he um, he has is, is come back to himself, and, and I want to say something to those of you that are young parents. When my three older children were all teenage girls, when they were, when they were all teenagers, that's when my hair fell out. <laughs> if I'd had three sons and one daughter, I'd still have hair today, but I had three girls, and, but here's what I want you to know. My, my girls are 38, 36, and 34 now. And they all went through where they really pulled away from me at different points. And a lot of a lot because they needed to. This would be a shock to you, I wasn't, wasn't a perfect father. Surprise you? Yeah. But here's the thing that's so interesting to me. My daughters at 38, 36, and 34, and I'm not meaning this in a silly way. I'm meaning this in a real way. They're more like the people they were at 8, 6, and 4, than they've ever been. It's almost like they, it's like we all have to go through this journey where you try to, you go through the peer group and you try to fit in and you, you try to try, you try the things, you try to find your own identity and other things. And then eventually what happens? God invites you to come back to what? Like the way he made you, yourself. You come back to that person rather, and there's so many false invitations to find our identity outside of anything but our relationship with God and his love for us. And so he comes to himself, to his senses, and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death, and I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So after this time of wild living, in, in the, the translation we're using wild living, it's a, the King James actually is the word riotous, riotous living. I, when I was a teenager, I liked that better. I thought that was more interesting. But it's basically he was living wild in every category you could imagine. So imagine being wild in every category of your life, just letting, just letting it rip. And you find yourself after all of this, you're sitting in filth, and eating with pigs. That's what Shauna was, was working on. This. She wrote, I just love that, that sentence. Sitting in filth, eating with pigs. A lot of you in this room have done that too. Sitting in filth, eating with pigs. And here's the sad thing. A lot of us thought we couldn't go home. We didn't think that the loving Savior was welcoming welcoming us home. And so Jesus knew. He wanted to tell stories to say, what am I really like? Let me tell you what I'm really like. This is what he wanted us to know. Because the son wanted to go home, but he didn't think there was a home to go to. So instead, he was going to go to a place of occupation, a place of food. But the place where home had been, this place of refuge and safety and security and stability, he said "That, that could never, ever be home. You know what it reminded me of? I've I've only shared this a couple times through the years. I, I made a pretty good decision to ask Paula to marry me. She made probably a less good decision to say yes. And a lot of people questioned her for a lot of years, like, what were you thinking? But wh- but one of the things that I didn't know is that, is that I hit the jackpot in that she has three older sisters and three brothers-in-law who are just... Greatest people I've ever known. One of them is Dee Dee Yunker, who's led the Insights Women Bible Study, for, written all the curriculums. Incredible, incredible people. But Paul's mom and dad were really, really special people. And I was doing youth ministry at, at, at Ward Presbyterian in Livonia all those years ago. It was 1978 to 1985. It's a long time ago. And I was, I was raking it in. I was making $9,000 a year. We were a single-income married couple. And after taxes and tithe, we were just trying to figure out what to do with the rest of our money. <laughs> and so one of the things we realized was a really good strategy is uh, Paul's mom and dad, who lived four miles, they had moved from Racine, Wisconsin, to be near their daughters, and their older daughters. Husbands worked in the Ford, worked for Ford. So they had moved to the Detroit area, and, and uh, their home was four, four miles from our, our little tiny home in, in Livonia and we realized that she served dinner pretty much every night at six o'clock. So for four years, we, we ate dinner at their house four or five nights a week. I'd have I'd go out and do youth stuff afterwards, but I'd come over and eat dinner. But here's the thing that I, that, that, that is so unusual. I don't know where this came from, but my mother and father in law, in all the years I knew them, never asked me to do anything. Like, I would get over there after a busy day, and they'd have this beautiful meal. She was a fantastic cook. And my father-in-law, the only fights we ever had were on what was left. We, we, some, he, he was a little aggressive. He needed Jesus in his heart. And, <laughs> but we would just have this beautiful meal. And then a lot of times I would just go over, sleep for an hour and a half on the couch with the Tigers game droning in the background. What I want you to know is, Marguerite and Virgil Erickson created a home for me, my mother and father-in-law. It was such an unbelievable refuge. I, I knew that I could just it's the one place I knew I could crash, and it was all right. that I didn't have to remove my dirty dishes from the, from the table. It didn't matter. They were like, "Here, you're safe." And it was only as I got older and older I realized that so many people never had that. They'd have those places of refuge where they were safe. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing as parents and grandparents who we said, we're going to create safe places. But this young man, he doesn't think he has any place he can go. He, can't, he doesn't have a refuge anymore, but he may have a job. He may have a place. Where he can eat. And so in verse 20, it says, he got up and went to his father. It's fascinating. The Greek word here is where it says he rose up. He got up. It says, it's anistomy. And it means to rise up. And it's often used to rise up as if from the dead. It's the same word that's used when Jesus calls Matthew the, the crooked tax collector to be one of his disciples. It says, Matthew rose up and left, left his stuff behind him. The demon possessed man, that Jesus' disciples couldn't handle when Jesus was coming down from the Transfiguration, it said he cast the demons out and said the man rose up in his right mind. It's a powerful word. So the young man, he doesn't even know it, but he's rising from the dead, and he starts his journey home. And here's what's hard to imagine, because of our access to water and the, the world that we live in, he's filthy. He smells like a pig farm, and he's dirty, probably nearly unrecognizable. His clothes would have been torn to shreds. He would have been unkempt and unmanaged, and he starts to go home. And at this point, I thought, that's where everybody ends up when they go to a far country. And that's part of what creates in us the desire, even if our motives aren't very good, to come back to the Father because we don't even know. To this day, we don't know what his motives are. Is he just preparing a speech? Say, Father, I've sinned, I'm not worthy, but give me a job because I'm really hungry. Does he even care? Has he even once thought about what his father had felt? No. Yeah, I would probably agree. Probably not. And so he heads home. And this is where the story just blows up. He says, but while he was a still... But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Ah! Might be the best verse in the whole Bible. Is there anything better than that? You ever wonder what God's like? You ever wonder what God has felt when you're blowing it? A lot of you in this room, you've got failed marriages. You might, you might even be in your marriage, it's not what you wanted it to be. You've, you've got broken relationships with people you love that you never thought, and you just, you thought, man, you think, you know what a lot of us thought about God? That you're off in the far country, you're riotous living, and God's there like, yeah, whatever. Arms crossed, look of disapproval. It's like my girls, when my girls became adults, we had some really hard talks. Where we got honest about our lives and our journey and our failures with each other, and one of the things that two two of my girls said, "Dad, you just you yelled at us all the time." I'm like, "I did not. (laughs) I I, yelled maybe so mad," and they said, "Oh yeah, Dad." He said, "All you had to do was that. You just you'd raise your eyebrows, and it was so disapproving." But our loving Lord is different. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I was looking this up, kind of studying this. It's really, really powerful. First of all, it's very clear that the the writer is trying to say it was a great distance. How do you see someone coming from a great distance? How do you recognize a guy whose hair is probably unkempt? His clothes are torn. He went out in an entourage he comes back alone, stumbling, probably barefoot. And a father instantly from a great distance, what was it he recognized? I've actually got a thought about this. If I were going to write this story as a novel, how many times did he see some beggar off a mile or two distant coming down the road? How many times did he run looking for his son? I bet he did it a number of times. First of all, I want you—he saw him a long way off, a great distance. The Jesus that is above all is looking for us. He sees us from a distance. He's looking. He's watching. He's hoping. That's the only way you could see someone from a great distance is if you're already looking. You're probably looking from the rooftop to see, so that you can see a long way. And I want you to know something, wherever you are today, whatever you're feeling with your life, whether you're watching on the stream, Jesus sees you. He sees your heartache. He sees the, sees the wounds of your life. He sees the hopes and the dreams. And he sees it optimistically. He sees it with hope. He sees you with hope and vision and with love. The second thing, it said he was filled with compassion. This is this is the best word in the New Testament. This is the word splang, splangnizomai. I should have put it up on the screen for you. And compassion means, the word splangnizomai means to be moved in one's bowels. You see, when you really feel something deeply, I just want you to know something. You don't feel it right here. You don't. You feel it right here. It's in your bowels. You ever You ever get caught like got caught out doing something really bad. What, did you feel something up here? No, you didn't. You're like, whoa, trouble. You feel it right there. You feel it in the deepest part of your being, the source of your emotions. That's how what they understood to be the source of our emotions. By the way, I don't have time to tell you, but I did escape being killed by a leopard when I was 12 in Kenya and, uh, we were living up in the mountains, in the Aberdeer Mountains, and I'd come down from the the mission school in the dark, about a, half a mile to our home, and came around the corner of our house, and it was a full-grown male leopard, about from me to you, maybe 10, 12 feet. And uh, I knew enough to just stand at the corner, and I just stood him, Just he stared at me, and I stared at him, and he finally went off, and looked back a couple times. It's a great story. Someday I'll tell you the whole, whole story. Come, come to a Field and Stream event, I'll tell you the story. And when he finally he finally left and disappeared into the dark, I leapt into the house, and I was I was so freaked out. I got a chair, and I put it under the doorknob of the front door, like the leopard's going to walk up and knock, and, oh, it's unlocked, I'm going to come in the door. I mean, that's how irrational I was. I was 12 years old, I, I jammed the thing up, waiting for my parents to come, and man, I was totally freaked out, because he, he was... You know, I was twelve years old, little guy, probably two full grown male leopard, two hundred pounds probably. And uh, all of a also I looked down and I'd wet my pants. I had splanked You feel you feel it from your bowels. I didn't even know it, but I knew that I, I knew my life I knew my life was hanging on a thread and without even knowing it, that's what that's what happened. What what the writer is trying to say is that the father was feeling something so deep that words can't express it. Later, Paul would, will write in Romans that, that, that the creation groans. It groans with the mo, like the pain of the whole world, needing a savior, needing a Lord, needing someone to fix things. the Israel groaning today, because the world is so broken, and we have a savior who feels this compassion, who's overflowing with compassion, and then he runs. And then he runs with haste. It wasn't until probably 20 years ago, I was reading a, a commentary of Luke by a, 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 an incredible Indian theologian from India. He says, you know, in almost all uh, emerging cultures, m- older men would never run. Uh, in fact, that's why I don't run. <laughs> It'd be too undignified. And uh, that's a lie. Uh, I have run from elephants in Zimbabwe. Do you want to hear that story? Yeah, come back another time. Okay. Um, so he sees his son, and he begins to run. And the word implies that he's running with haste. He's not just, he's trying to get there. And this theologian had written this commentary. He said, you don't realize that when someone in uh, more of Middle Eastern Eastern culture When a person shames their family, they shame the whole community. So this young man just didn't bring disgrace on his father and his brother. He brought it on the whole community. And he says, almost all uh, ancient cultures have laws that when someone shames their community, the community can rise up and banish the person. And so he said, so it's very probable that the father is looking every day for his son. Maybe he's heard word that he's coming, but he's looking. And when he sees him, he begins to run with all his might. Because if he doesn't get there in time, the community could get there first. And they could banish his son forever. You banish, you're gone from this community. He is running to get to his son to put his protection over his son. This is where I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ sees you in your trouble and he doesn't stand back, he runs to be with you in your trouble, in your heartache, in your fears. He says to be, you are never alone. And so he runs, he runs and he doesn't care about the disgrace or the shame that people might look at him or that people would, be, would pity him or feel disgusted by him. doesn't matter. He runs. And then it says he embraces. He embraces fully. The, the, it, it, the, the literal translation is he fell onto his son's neck. But a better understanding for us would be, it's like when you grab someone with the intention of never letting them go. Now, almost all of us have had that feeling. you ever... Maoris, when you left Connecticut and you hugged people, this is, this is probably how you hugged them. When you, when we sent our children off around the world, I, I remember when our oldest daughter was the first to leave home for a year, and she was going to a, a country in uh, West Africa that was 99% Muslim. We watched her go through security and fortunately, she's our daughter of all our kids, hates making a scene. She's like, just go away, you know. She goes through security, and right before she hits the escalators at, uh, at Delta, the McNamara, she, she steps up, and one last time, she turns and waves. And she's flying into incredible post-2001 world, in a totally Muslim country. And then we had to wait five days for an email just to let us know that she was okay and arrived safely. So, when you see, so when she came back after six months, can you imagine what we felt when we were waiting at the airport again? You want to grab somebody and embrace them like you're never going to let them go. And then here's the thing that's so interesting that I've never seen until this time. It says, when he fell on to kiss him, like in our culture, you kiss somebody, you're like a peck on the cheek or whatever. We'd, you know, Midwestern culture, we're not big kissers, you know, when it comes to family. You know, my dad, some of you will know this, my dad kissed me on the lips every morning when he greeted me. And every evening when I come back from school or he'd come back from work, he would greet me with a kiss on the lips. Last time I ever saw him, three days before he died, said goodbye, I was driving back here, he kissed me on the lips. Now, but, you know, people just don't do that. But here, this word, katafileo, you know what it really means? This is what the, the translation would actually be better. It said, he grabbed him and seized him like he would never let him go. And then it said, he kissed him again and again and again. It's not a one-time kiss. It's like when you kiss your grandkids, when you grandbaby. That's what it was like. It was like, it was such love and affirmation. And here's what I want you to know. This is how God feels about you. That's what's so incredible. He sees this. This is the image Jesus wanted you to have of God the Father, the Lord over all. Jesus is saying, at the core of all existence, this is who God is. He sees you from afar. He's filled with incredible emotion of love and compassion for you, and pity, and mercy, and grace, all of that rolled up into one thing. And then he runs. And he runs in haste before you turn away, before somebody else distracts you or somebody else calls you worthless. He's coming to you. And then he seizes you, never lets you go, and kisses you again and again. That's what Jesus wants you to know. And then the son gives his speech. We're almost done. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father ignores it. quick. Bring the best robe, put it on, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. I don't have time to talk about this today, but every one of these signals full sun chips. Sun chips, sorry. Tried. I thought it might be funny, but it wasn't. The robe, the sandals, the ring, all this. And then the fattened calf. This is, you celebrate someone of immense importance. And then he says, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You know what I hope you can remember? All of you have had moments of celebration somewhere in your life. You won a game on your team. You didn't expect to win. You got a windfall. Some people surprised you with on a birthday party. But to be celebrated. Is there anything like being celebrated? And God, the Father through Jesus, the Son is saying to you, I celebrate you. I want you to come home. I'm waiting. I'm looking. Come and be a part of this. And notice in the story, they're not having behavior modification. They're not having what-if conversations. They're not, hey, you better understand, that, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. It's a welcome of grace and mercy and compassion. It's It's reckless. We're going to sing about that in just a minute, and then I want to finish with the older son. The older son's the good son. You know, there's two kind of people in this room. There's prodigals, and then there's people who've always tried to do the right thing. There's probably about six of you in the room, (laughs) and he's ticked. He says he 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 hears the music and the dancing. Uh, Verse 26. He calls one of the servants and he goes, "Hey, man, your your dad's gone crazy." Kill the fattened calf. Your brother's back safe and sound. And then it says in verse 28, this is the last one I want you to really think about. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He, just, he would not enter. Like there's a lot of stuff in the New Testament about Jesus inviting us to enter into his fellowship, to trust him, to enter into a relationship with him, to come in the door. And here's what I realized. You can be miles and days and days of walking away from home, or you can be two feet from the door and just as far away. And Jesus is saying, listen, drop your anger. Give your anger over to Jesus. Give your bitterness. Give your resentment about your sibling. Because here's what's happening. All that the father is spending on the son, it's the brothers. He's like, you're spending my stuff on this worthless guy. and And then he just... It's so sad. I want you to think again about what is God like. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Jesus says, I want you to know what God the father is like. He sees from afar. He also comes out when you're rebellious and when you're angry and resentful, he comes out and pleads with you to let it go. To drop it. All the bitterness in your heart. The father's please let it go. Drop it. And then the son says, look, all these years have been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, and you never gave, even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate. And this son of yours, he squandered your property with prostitutes. It's probably true. He says, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus is saying, you know what gives God the greatest joy? When people come home, when people come in, when people come back, don't refuse to come in because Jesus is inviting you. He wants you to come. So, just in closing, I want you to think about Jesus Christ coming for you. Born of a virgin. In a backwater nowhere town called Bethlehem, famous now but not famous then, in embarrassing circumstances, lived his whole life being called illegitimate. even his family thought he was crazy. He gave his life for us. He modeled the story of the father. he keeps looking and keeps welcoming, embracing. I just want you to know, he's calling you. He loves you. In the first service, uh, Kyle Krause's wife and two sons were here. Kyle was killed. And one of our Field and Stream guys, he was killed in a terrible accident a couple years ago. And I was just thinking those boys. I was praying all morning that the Lord, that those boys would always know how much their father loved them. And then I thought, well, that's what I want for you. I just want you to know how much you're loved. Even if you don't believe it, even say a prayer today, so I, Andrew's talking about how much you love me. I don't even believe it. But might it be true? If Jesus is risen, and then all of that was so that you would know you're loved and valued beyond imagination? That's why Paul writes in Philippians, it says, God elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor and gave him a name above all other names that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord, but he's not the Lord that bosses you and pushes you. He's the the Lord that goes ahead of you into the storm. Like he he goes ahead of you and takes the the hardest part of the wind, hardest part of the storm because you're so precious to him. And so as we finish this, we're going to finish with a song. Matthias and the team are going to lead us. And the song that we're talking about is Running to the Father, which is so cool, because I want you to think about the Father running to you, making haste to wrap his arms of protection around you. You're not alone, no matter what your situation is. And then let this moment, this moment of response here at the end of the day, you're opening your hearts fully for him to do whatever he wants with you. So instead of you living the a... A, a, a centered life about yourself. You're opening up your life that the king of the universe, the Lord over all, who knows you and sees you, actually knows what's best for you and you can trust him and follow him. So Lord, thank you. Lead and guide every precious person in this room that they would know that you're calling them, you're searching for them and that the answer to the longings of their heart are not out there in the world, they're not in job they're not in a relationship. They're not in a self-determined identity. It's, they're they're going to know they're precious because of you and because of what you've done. So fill us up in this moment as we sing and worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.